Well, this morning I feel incredibly privileged uh, to speak to you on a topic that I believe, and I think God believes, Paul believes, John believes, Peter believes, even J.D. believes, is central to the Christian life. I want to speak to you on the subject of love, specifically God's love. Now, when I said that, I realized that some of you may have already disengaged. You started to lean in on the first sentence, but you disengaged when I said God's love. Some of you may have thought, uh, I'm already well acquainted with God's love. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I've, I've got that. Couldn't you have come up with something deeper, something that will strengthen my faith and help me to live the Christian life? No, I couldn't. I tried, but I couldn't. For others of you, you might have thought love. Love? A focus on love, even God's love, is the stepping stone to being soft on sin. Couldn't you come up with something more serious, like holiness or God's holiness? No, I couldn't. You see, I've been studying the book of Ephesians for an upcoming series that we'll be preaching at Countryside. And I've been struck by how central the subject is. Of love is in that book. Over half of the Apostle Paul's usage of the word love in his writings in the New Testament are contained within the book of Ephesians. God's love is central to our holiness. And our holiness is really the expression of our love for God and others. In fact, Think about this. The love of God for you is the only hope you have in light of God's holiness. And your holiness is dependent on your growing love for God. Let me repeat that in case you missed it. The love of God for you is the only hope you have in light of God's holiness. And your holiness is dependent. On your growing love for God. And I think I can prove that. I think I'm in good company here. Because not only is love an important subject in the book of Ephesians. It is the heart of one of Paul's prayers recorded in that very book. So if you have a Bible, uh, navigate with me uh, to Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. the Apostle Paul writing beginning at verse 14, Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians is a letter written by a man in prison, written to a church, and then subsequently churches in the area to whom it was to be spread, but a church, first and foremost, that he truly loved. He said, well, Paul loved all the churches, and that's true. He loved all the churches that he planted, but this is a church that Paul actually ministered in for over two years. He's writing this letter after serving in this church for two years as one of its elders, as an apostle of God and an elder in the Ephesian church, ministering to the people, getting the church grounded and founded, and yet, later in his life, sitting in prison, he is compelled to pray this for that church. Do you think Paul ever talked about God's love? You are right. I love that when the kids are involved. That means everybody else is involved, right? Yeah. Do you think the Apostle Paul ever talked about their love for God and Christ having the first place of their heart's affection? Yes, he did. And yet, years later, sitting in a prison cell, he felt it essential to write this letter and teach them once again on God's love and to pray for them. Pray for them something critical to our living out the Christian life, and relating to God and others. And that is his love. He begins this section with these words, for this reason. That's because he kind of started to get into this prayer in verse 1. If you look back at verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, for this reason, all of the things that I've just said that we have recorded in chapters 1 and 2, all of the things I just said to you, and he's starting to pray, and then he gets, this is Paul, um, he gets off on a little bit of a tangent, but now he's coming back to it. But you know what? Verse 13 also gives us a hint as to why he is praying this. He's concerned about this church. He's concerned about this church because he's in prison. He's concerned about this church because this church is aware of his suffering for the sake of the gospel. He's concerned about this church because this church is probably facing its own suffering for the sake of the gospel. And now they know that Paul has been imprisoned and could possibly be executed. And he's concerned for them. He says in verse 13, 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, Paul said, for the reason that you could lose heart, that Christ and your affection for Christ, the primary place that Christ has in your heart, I'm concerned about it, church. And I've got to pray for you. Pray for you. 
for this reason. And he bows his knees here. He says, I bow my knees. A typical posture uh, in Judaism, typical, not the only posture, but a typical posture would be to stand praying. Even for Greeks in their temples, they stood praying often with raised hands toward God or a God. But for Paul, this required getting on his knees. It was a sign of submission and utter dependence. You can just imagine it as, uh, you know, parents, as your um, teenager gets to the age of 16 and they drop to their knees, please, 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 please let me have the car this weekend. Please, 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 please. That's Paul pleading with the Father. Please, God, answer this prayer. I need a powerful yes from you in this prayer. The future of the church in Ephesus is dependent upon your answering this prayer. Now, in case you've forgotten the last sentence of this section of Scripture, I don't want you to forget the goal which is stated there. The goal of this prayer. The end of of this prayer. This is the end that Paul wants to see achieved that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm going to pray for you church based on what I've said about the marvelous salvation that God has granted you in Christ and the suffering that you know that I have now because I'm preaching that message. I want to pray for you that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I don't want you to lose heart. I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. So how does one become filled with all the fullness of God? I want you to see that first it's through a heart that is consumed with a love for Christ. One is filled with all the fullness of God through a heart that is consumed with a love for Christ Your heart needs to be consumed with a love for Christ. He must have first place in your affections. The very next word after Paul says, I bow my knees, he he uses the word before. This is who I'm praying to, church, before the Father, and he identifies him, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, you might be tempted to think, oh, I love that verse because it it teaches the universal fatherhood of God. We are all the children of God. Everybody is loved by the Father and everybody is accepted uh, by the Father. Not quite. The universal fatherhood of God does not give everyone a free pass. Paul is not using it here to make you feel good if you have never repented of your sin and received Jesus Christ by faith. He's not using this designation here to just encompass everybody who will always be um, born and saying to them, you are all accepted because God is the universal father. That's not what he means. It's not what he means. The universal fatherhood of God is an acknowledgement of his place as the creator. He has first place and thereby thereby is sovereign. He's sovereign. And he says, this is the father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. In Near Eastern culture, naming, the naming convention gave you authority over those you named. 
Paul is actually saying something very serious here. I prayed to the one who is completely sovereign over all and is the only one that has authority over all. That church is the one to whom I am praying. He is the only one that can answer. He is the only one who is powerful enough and is capable of answering. And he is the one whose action here is absolutely necessary for making these things that I'm praying for a reality in your life. I am pleading before the Father for these things. Pleading that you might have a heart that is consumed with a love for Christ. He pleads, as you see there, according to the riches of his glory, God's glory. God has the resources. Paul says, I'm praying this because God has the resources. His glory is infinite, unfathomable. He's not going to run out of the resources necessary to answer this prayer. I'm praying to God, the Father, who has all the necessary resources. And here is what I'm praying. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. I have to pray this, Paul said, because you're weak. You need his work. You're in danger of losing heart, of becoming discouraged, possibly of even dropping the mention of Christ because suffering could be on the horizon. And I'm praying for you that you will push through this with an affection for Jesus that allows you to face each and every day each and every moment of persecution, each and every doubt that you have, each and every sin that you commit, I'm praying that Christ will be established as your affection and see you through those times, those moments. This love for God has always been something that has been central to the teaching of Scripture. If you remember or are aware of the book of Joshua, Joshua said this in chapter 22, verse 5, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments and to cling to Him and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. You can see why I say your holiness is dependent upon your growing love for God. It's the answer that Jesus gave when he was confronted as to what was the greatest commandment, right? And he said the first is to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love for God is central. 
But your love for God, as Paul well knows, only comes through God's love for you. Right? Isn't that what John writes to us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19? We love because he first loved us. You see, for Paul, what he has written in the previous two chapters of our Bibles, this intense love of God for his people means that we are to be consumed with that and grow in love for him. It's just like he's saying, I've told you all these great things about what God has done. Doesn't that stir your heart in love for him? You see, that's why it's so important that we rehearse the gospel. The gospel is not, it's that nugget of truth. It's that centrality of truth that is critical for becoming a Christian and living in a Christian. It's not the only truth that's critical. There are a lot of other things. But if you don't have that settled and that right, and that isn't so firm and foundational to who you are, then it's really hard to grow. In Christ's likeness. It's really hard. So how does one become filled with all the fullness of God? Through a heart that is consumed with a love for Christ. But that's not all here. That's not all. I want you to see secondly that also it is through a mind that is consumed by the love of God for us. So you mu- your heart must place Christ first in its affections. First in its love. But your mind also has to be consumed. By the love of God for us. Look there at the end of verse 17. Paul says, I'm praying this so that, you may d- that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Okay, so I have planted you. I'm praying that you be planted deep. Your roots would be driven deep into the love of Christ. That your nourishment and your stability might be found there in love for Christ. And that you might be grounded. You might be on a firm foundation in this love you have for Christ. I'm praying that. But then I'm also praying this, that your love for Christ might lead to you knowing more and more about the love of God for you. He's like, you know, it's not enough to be established there in the love of Christ, love for Christ. You have to grow in your knowledge of the love of Christ in order to stay rooted and grounded. He says this, he says, I'm praying that you may have strength to comprehend. Then there at the end, beginning of verse 19, and to know the love of Christ. I want you to know something, church. I want you to know the love of Christ. What does this love of Christ look like that I've been talking about? Well, J.D. read a beautiful passage in Titus 3 kind of explains uh, some of the love of Christ. If you look back in your Bibles in the book of Ephesians, I can tell you what this love of Christ looks like. 
Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, here is the love of God for us. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What does this love look like? God took a dead thing and made it alive in his presence. But that's not all. Look down at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. God's love extended not just to taking a dead thing and making it alive. But to, for saving you from his wrath which was deserved by all. No one in this room could ever be righteous enough to stand before God. His holiness is too pure, and his wrath is unescapable for sin. And sin is an open declaration of rebellion, no matter how small. You know, when my son Gabe, who plays guitar, uh, Gabe, where are you? There he is. When my son Gabe was like one and a half and he used to crawl around on the floor and he'd crawl around, uh, you know, towards the wall and we'd see him. And he'd look back over his shoulder because he knew that that socket was no. But he would crawl and he'd look over his shoulder and he'd be reaching out his hand. And I'd, be go, I'd go, no! Right? You're like, what does that have to do with anything that you're talking about? That's such a minor offense, right? It was pretty serious to me. I mean, one, he could have really hurt himself by sticking his finger in there, too. But it was, he knew better, right? He was looking over his shoulder. That, I wish we'd have caught a picture of that because it was so cute and so offensive at the same time. <laughs> because he's looking over his shoulder like, ah, am I going to get away with it? No, you're not. Your littlest sins to God are not even cute. And they are certainly offensive. Because he is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He is the sovereign creator with all authority. And even your little sin is an act of rebellion towards a perfectly holy God. He cannot look the other way. So what did he do? He sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin. And now he has saved those who have placed their faith in Jesus as a gift of grace, mercy, and an act of love. So God has taken what was said in verses 1 and 2, or 1 through 3 there of chapter 2, 
uh, about you being his enemy, and he has now made you his friend. But he goes one step further in his love. Look with me at chapter 1, verse, at the end of verse 4 there, chapter 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. God took his enemy and adopted him into his family. Man, that's, that's beyond. That's beyond what I think of as love. That's way beyond that. And that's because my definition of love is so small sometimes. Paul says, I want to explode your definition of love, church. I want you to understand the depths of God's love towards you through Christ. I want you to know that God took you from being his enemy and has not only made you his friend, he wants to call you child. Child. He's brought us into his family as sons and daughters because of his great love. This is the love That he wants to consume our minds. This is the love which Paul wants them to stand firm. It's the love that fills you with confidence and boldness. When you're facing situations in life that are seeking to dampen and destroy your confidence in God. If they haven't come, they will. They will. Just ask Craig Miller. He's been tempted to question the love of God. I'm sure of it. It doesn't mean he's any less of a son of God. I could ask each and every one of you. I could ask your pastor, and he would tell you that there are times when sin in your life wants you to question the love of God. There are times when things or people or sports teams or automobiles become more important to you than the love of God. And they want to steal, rob your understanding of God's love for you. And there are certainly circumstances in life that want to rip this acknowledgement of God's love for us. God's love toward us through Christ. God's love in Christ. They want to rip that away from us. And Paul is saying, I am praying with all of my might that this would not happen. Some really incredible words come next. That When Paul says, you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints this, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. I didn't have a proper perspective of that series of words until just a couple of years ago uh, meditating on this passage. I was actually driving um, to by myself to an Ironman uh, conference. I don't remember why I was going by myself. I think I had to come back. Yeah, I had to come back right away and I couldn't afford not to get right back at a certain time. So I'm driving by myself, and I'm, I'm thinking about this verse. And for some reason, um, 
whether it's in the shower or in the car by myself, I think better. I don't know if that's true for you, but it is for me. And I was thinking about what Paul says here, and it dawned on me that Paul wasn't saying, I'm standing and I'm observing God's love. And it's like this massive cube that I can see the height and the length, and I just have a sense of its depth. It's just, it's just massive. I realize that that's wrong. You see, when we go to describe a cube or an object like that, we do think in terms of those three dimensions, but that's not the language Paul uses here, is it? He uses four descriptors. He says, when I look up, I can't see the end of it. When I look down, I can't see the end of it. When I look to the right, or to, the, to the, my right, your right, uh, the right or the left, I can't see the end of it. When I look ahead and behind me, I cannot see the end of it. What does that mean to him and to you? That you're in the middle of it and it's inexhaustible. You can't see the end of it. You're not close to the line. You're not almost stepping outside of the love. Paul says, I want you to understand, church, that you are in the middle of God's love and you can't escape it. Nothing you can do can cause God to stop loving his child. You've got, that's got to consume your mind so that when you're without a job and looking for a job and not finding one and not finding one and not finding one and that voice goes off in your head, maybe God doesn't love me. Deny it. It's lying to you. You know, when you're in the midst of, of sin and you're ashamed and you're feeling guilt and you think, I, I don't even know if I can pray about this. I mean, it's, it's just something that I, I don't think God can forgive me for. That's a lie. If you are his child, flee to your father because his love is inexhaustible for you. Because that's what Paul says here next, right? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You might be tempted to think, oh, you can't know the love of Christ. That's not what Paul means. What Paul means here is that you can't exhaust your understanding of the love of God for you in Christ. You could study it all day long. You could memorize this book and all the books that have been written about it. And you could never exhaust that knowledge. You could never come to a complete knowledge. And in eternity, you will never come to a complete knowledge of that. You will always wait. You will experience every day in eternity being overcome with the love of God for you. And it will be fresh, and it will be new, and it will be exciting, and by it, God will be glorified, and you'll just be overwhelmed. And Paul says, I'm praying that you would just catch a glimpse of that church at Ephesus. Redemption Hill. It's the thing that helps you battle sin. It's the thing that helps you go out into the streets and share with your neighbor or share 
with the one in your workplace. It is the thing that drives you in the face of persecution or suffering because you call yourself a Christian. It's the thing that causes you not to lose heart, but with confidence and boldness declare nobody can take the love of God from me. If you don't believe that, read the end of Romans 8. Nothing, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. What Paul is talking about here is incredible. That through a mind that is consumed by the love of God, we can be filled to all the fullness of God. Why is Paul praying this for this church? Why does he say the spirit needs to get involved? God needs to get involved? Because the implications of this prayer are that the spirit will empower our lives. And that by that we might be transformed to live like Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, look with me at a couple of passages here moving forward. You see, the first two chapters opened up all that God has done in love for us. And then Paul says, and I'm praying that God would open up your minds to what this love looks like. Because, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I'm calling you, I'm calling you to unity instead of a natural division. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why do you have to be consumed with this? Why do you have to grow in it? Because I'm calling you to unity instead of a natural division. Just take a look at our country. It is so divided. But you know what? We're not alone. Take a look at the world. It is divided. Everything is divided. You read the first few chapters and Paul talks about two groups of people who were completely divided, Jews and Gentiles. And yet in the church, God has made them one and he's done that through his love. And the only way to survive as a church unified is to be consumed with the love of God for you. That's not all. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Uh, look there with me. He says, we've been called to a mutual ministry instead of isolation by this love. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul prays for a change of heart and mind because he's calling them to mutual ministry instead of isolation. And he prays for a change of heart and mind because he's calling them to imitation instead of self-actualization. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Why is Paul praying this? Why has he recorded this prayer for future generations? 
because it is essential to living the Christian life. Understanding these things, having Christ as a primary affection of the heart, having a mind that is consumed by the subject of God's love for us, helps us accomplish ministry in the church, accomplish ministry in the world, and face a world that is still fallen, even though Jesus has died. I want you to be filled, Paul says, with all the fullness of God. And to do this, you've got to understand the love of God for you. Paul says God's love is to fill you up. It must be overflowing in your heart and in your mind because of what I'm going to ask you. I want you to be able to say this, church at Ephesus, when you're confronted with the situations of life. I want you to be able to say, I don't want to get involved with X because that doesn't reflect God's love for me. I don't want to get involved with pornography. I don't want to get involved with this or that or some other sin because that doesn't reflect God's love for me. I don't want to ignore your command to put away falsehood. I don't want to ignore your command to work that I may have something to share with those in need. I don't want to ignore your command to be kind and forgiving. I don't want to ignore your command to love my wife or respect my husband. I don't want to ignore your command to work my job as unto you. Why? Because that doesn't reflect your love for me, God. And to do so reveals my primary ref- affection is myself and not Christ. Oh, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That our affections would be rooted and grounded in love for Christ and our minds would be consumed with God's love for us. Paul is saying, I want that for you, church. And if he could stand beside me this morning, he would say, I want that for you, Redemption Hill. I want that for you. I want you to ask yourself an honest question. What has first place in your affections? Is it Christ? Is he in the primary spot of your heart's affections? Think about it. What, it, what, what is that thing or situation or um, person who may have superseded Jesus in your affections? What needs to change in order for Christ to have first place? But ask yourself this, does my thinking default to God's love for me when life is challenging? Does my thinking default to God's love for me when life is challenging? If not, what do you need to understand about God's love for you that will help you live with confidence? There are people all around you that would help you through that, that would disciple you, help you understand 
this help you understand and come to grips with God's love for you, even in the midst of very difficult times? Because he's demonstrated that love by sending Jesus to die for your sins, to die for his enemies so that they might become family. When I say that, if that doesn't excite your love for Christ and fill your minds with the possibilities of the love of God for you, then please talk to me afterwards. I want to show you what that looks like. Man, it was how many years ago now? Uh, seven, almost 20, this will be 25th anniversary for me, this July 13th, or no, 17th. My anniversary is July 13th. On July 17th or 18th, I got saved. I found the love of Christ for me through the gospel. For those of you who don't know, I was a committed atheist. Committed atheist. Didn't believe a thing written in this book. Now, I want Christ in this book to consume my heart and mind. If you want to talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your word which communicates your great love for us. God, may we grasp it at the level that Paul wants us to understand it so that we might move forward in our lives to grow in holiness, so that we might be able to imitate you and love the way you've loved us. Father, I pray your blessing on this group of people. May the love of Christ truly be seen in their ministry to their community, in their places of work, in their neighborhoods. God, I pray that you would use that display of your love and the impact that it's had on their life to call others to repentance and faith in Jesus. God, do this thing in the power of your spirit and because it pleases you, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.